So before I start tonight's talk, there are a couple of questions here. I have one long description of looking at the four elements in the compost bin and seeing how they work, but asking, but what does this have to do with spiritual practice? And I'd say probably not much. Um, The four-element practice is to basically examine your own body, your own materiality, and then the materiality of the world around you, and notice the commonality, okay? To notice also that all the things that you're looking at are combinations of smaller bits and pieces, solid bits, liquid bits, etc., uh, rather than substantial objects in their own right. So, yeah, you could look at the compost bin and see, oh, it's got solid bits in it, but it's not an entity in and of itself, and that would be more accurate than really trying to understand the chemistry of it. I hope this is helpful. Someone had a concentrated today, uh, yesterday, but today, after a bad night, uh, the person is full of anger. Uh, they say the anger has gotten the better of me on many occasions. Can I suggest uh, two meditative solutions in the short term? Uh, that helps in the moment. So in the short term, when anger arises, you're to use the antidote of metta practice. So if you're feeling any sort of aversion, anger, sadness, fear, the thing that's probably going to be the most helpful in the short term is to do some sort of metta practice. Just basically get your mind on something else something that's actually the complete opposite. Now, this doesn't mean you have to do metta for the person you're angry at, assuming you're angry at a person. Just do metta for anybody, for yourself. Uh, Find someone. And in the long term, is there a specific practice? Uh, I think it says besides metta... uh, No, is there a specific practice or technique? And again, metta can be helpful. So you do it in the short term, and it will also do it specifically for the short term, but it'll have long-term benefits. Other practices that can be helpful is more of an anatta practice, seeing that what has arisen hasn't necessarily arisen because this person is an evil person. They're just, they're caught up in circumstances of their life and things are happening that way. Uh, There's not really a self in them that's causing all this to happen. Furthermore, seeing the anatta aspect of yourself you are responding to external circumstances. You are, you are not anger. 
right? Anger has arisen as a reaction to the external circumstances. Can you find some way to, shall we not say, not be totally enveloped by the external circumstances? It may also be helpful in the long term to look at things in terms of impermanence. Look at things in terms of the significance of whatever's going on on a cosmic scale. We have some videotapes of Ayakema teaching, and one of the videotapes opens with her holding a postcard, and it's a picture of the Andromeda galaxy. And the postcard says, this is a picture of the Milky Way. It's actually the Andromeda galaxy, but it has on it, you are here, right? Pointing to an obscure corner of the galaxy, which probably looks a great deal like the Milky Way. It says, the sun is one of a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of approximately a hundred billion galaxies in the known universe. This being the case, just how important are your problems? (laughs) So maybe getting some perspective like that can be helpful. Now, admittedly, it's your problem, and you're the one experiencing the dukkha, so it can be a bit more intense than just simply dismissing it that, yeah, it's not important. But really trying to look at things in a bigger picture sometimes can be helpful. So I hope these suggestions are a little bit helpful. The other night I talked about the first four jhanas. These jhanas are sometimes referred to as the rupa jhanas. Rupa means materiality. So the four elements are the four elements of rupa. Now this isn't to say that the jhanas are material. What it's trying to say, I think, is twofold. One, that in the jhanic states, you're still aware of your material body. Remember, you drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse your body with the rapture and happiness, etc. And these are experiences the likes of which we have had in the material world. So these are material experiences, refined material experiences perhaps, There's a simile in the Vasudhimaga for the first four jhanas. It's quite accurate. You're lost in the desert. You don't have any water. It's a precarious situation. And you come over a little rise, and in the distance you see what might be palm trees. You head towards it. You get a little excited. As you draw nearer, the palm trees don't disappear. It's not a mirage. As you get closer still, you encounter people with wet hair, with bundles of wet clothing. There's water there. You get pretty excited, first jhana. You come to the oasis. It's beautiful. Big pool of cool, clear, clean water. You are really happy, second jhana. You... 
drink the water, you slake your thirst, you get in, you cool off, you clean up, you get out, you are contented, third jhana. And then you lie down in the shade of a tree and have a rest, fourth jhana. This really captures quite accurately what the emotions go through as you move through the four jhanas, excitement, calming to happiness, to contentment, to a really restful place, a quiet stillness. However, the so-called higher jhanas are not anything like you have experienced in the material world. In the suttas, they're referred to as the immaterial states, now often called the immaterial jhanas. They have official names. The first jhanas are just simply jhana one, two, three, and four. But these have actual names. I'll read you what it says. Here, by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, Seeing that space is limitless, one reaches and remains in the realm of limitless space, sometimes called the sphere of infinite space. So that's the name of the so-called fifth jhana, the realm or place of limitless space. Um, Infinite space Well, okay, except that's not really an accurate translation. At the time of the Buddha, they didn't even have the concept of zero, so they certainly didn't have the concept of infinity, but they did have the concept of limitless, boundless. So, by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations, this is a deeper state of concentration. It's a state of concentration deep enough that you are not aware of your body any longer. There's no more drenching, steeping, saturating, or suffusing. To really explain this, maybe I should just give you the directions of how to get there. So, you're in the fourth jhana. You're going to need a nice, deep fourth jhana to build a concentration enough to be able to make the leap to the fifth jhana. It's a... It's a bigger change than any of the previous changes. When you're in the fourth jhana, you may find yourself a bit slumped over. Your energy is just really down. If you're peaking and you notice somebody slumped over, you should not think, oh, they've fallen asleep. You should think, oh, how nice, they're in the fourth jhana. Of course, if they snore, they give it away. But (laughs) anyhow... So if you're sort of slumped over in the fourth jhana, then straighten yourself up a bit, okay? So now you're actually between jhanas. You're not in the fourth jhana. You've straightened up your energy. And then what Ayakema said to me was to get in touch with the boundaries of my being and then expand them to fill the room. And then when I felt I'd gotten them expanded to fill the room, expand them to fill the whole building. And then all of the property, and then this whole hillside, 
and just keep expanding the boundaries of my being further and further away until I reach the horizon and keep going. So the focus now is on outward expansion. And it says, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, as you're expanding outwards, it needs to go smoothly and not get stuck. Just expanding further, 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 further. And by the non-attraction to the perception of diversity. When you first start, there's your body, and then there's the room, and the building, and the property, and the horizon. And just keep going. Don't think of expanding out to the moon, and Mars, and Jupiter. Just get the expansion going. No perceptions of diversity through the expansion. Stay focused on that sense of outward expansion. If you can do so and have sufficient concentration, then a vast empty space will appear before you. Don't look for the space. If you look for the space, you're not focused on the outward expansion and it won't show up. You have to stay focused on outward expansion. Now, what Ayakima told me was expand the boundaries of my being. It turns out you can expand anything as long as you can imagine expanding it without limit. I had one student who was very imaginative. She imagined blowing up a balloon, bigger, 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 until it popped and there was the space. She was also the one that took a torch and followed the beam of light further, 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 further until it illuminated the space. Anything that you can expand without limit will work as long as your concentration is good enough to stay focused on the expansion. The space will appear. You don't need to look for it. It just sort of shows up and you're like, wow. When it does, put your attention on the spaciousness. If you're a visual person, you will probably see the space. It might be sort of an off-white, light gray. There may or may not be a horizon line. Or it might be black. Black like outer space, but with no stars or planets or galaxies or anything. Just a big black, empty space. And the most striking thing about it is its size. It's big space. There is still a tiny sense of an observer. You might not notice this the first few times you get in because it's just like, wow, what a big space. But the sense of observer is still there and it's quite tiny. The observer is experiencing this big space. Now, if you're not a visual person, you might not see the space, but you'll somehow know the space is there. I can't give you any more details than that because I see the space every time because I am visual. But the students I've talked to indicate they know there's a big space there. Focus on the spaciousness. That's the fifth jhana, the realm of limitless space. So when you can maintain this for five to ten minutes, then 
by passing entirely beyond the realm of limitless space, seeing that consciousness is limitless, one reaches and remains in the realm of limitless consciousness. The instructions are getting sparse. Okay, so the realm of limitless consciousness is the sixth jhana. The trick for getting there is to realize that you cannot be aware of a limitless space with a limited consciousness. You need a consciousness as big as that which it is conscious of. So, having experienced this limitless space, turn your attention back to your consciousness. Become aware of your awareness. It is as big as the space. When you do this, what it feels like is that you become absorbed into the space and you are now this limitless consciousness. Your mind has gotten very big. Stay focused on the big mind, the limitless consciousness, limitless awareness. People who are visual usually describe it as dark, but all of this visual stuff is pretty much idiosyncratic. It doesn't really matter. It's just whatever shows up. If you come from a spiritual tradition where the goal of spiritual practice is union with some sort of higher self, union with Atman, and you manage to get to the sixth jhana, you might think that you've achieved the goal of spiritual practice. I mean, now you have become an infinite consciousness. That's it, right? No. You are having an experience that seems as though you have a boundless consciousness. And that is how you're interpreting it. It's not that there is a boundless consciousness that you have now merged with. At least that's my interpretation. When the sixth jhana is quite strong, you may notice other consciousnesses within this limitless consciousness. Like there's a few more consciousnesses over here and a few more over there. It's not that you can read the minds of the people over here. This is just what the experience seems like. You're going to need a quite strong sixth jhana for this to happen. Uh, I've been practicing the sixth jhana for yeah, almost 20 years, and I've only had it happen to me maybe a half dozen times when it was really strong. But it is a possibility. So you sit there and you stay focused on this limitless consciousness. When you can do that for five to ten minutes, by passing entirely beyond the realm of limitless consciousness, seeing that there is no thing, one reaches and remains in the realm of no thingness, nothingness. It's given here as no hyphen thingness which is actually a good way to translate it. This is not the same as emptiness 
as found in the Mahayana tradition. This is, this is that there is nothing to be found. The trick to move from the sixth jhana to the seventh jhana is you've got this huge consciousness. Shift your attention from the consciousness to the content of that consciousness. The sense of spaciousness has long disappeared. And when you try and become aware of what is this consciousness actually aware of, you find nothing. Put your attention on the nothing. Once your attention arrives on the, a sense of nothing, no matter how small a nothing, just stay focused on the sense of nothing. If you stay with it, it'll get to be a bigger nothing. Sort of nothing over here, nothing over there. It's sort of like you go into the basement and you flick the light switch and it doesn't work. And you're trying to see what's in the basement. Well, there's nothing right in front of you. And there's nothing over there. And there's nothing over here. Why, there's nothing down here at all. It's that kind of nothing. It's the nothing... You look around this room, there are lots of things in here, right? There's people, there's mats, there's cushions, there's a Buddha statue, we got Quan Yin, we got flowers. Well, let's say while you're asleep, people come in and they take everything out. And you come back in the morning and you go, there's nothing here. It's that kind of nothing. There's no thing to be found. It's like opening the cookie jar, sorry, the biscuit jar, and you put your hand in and there's nothing in there. There's just nothing to be found. Focus on the sense of nothing. People do stumble into this state unexpectedly. I've had students come to me for their first interview and they say, can, can I tell you about something happened to me? And they describe being on the three-month course at IMS or some long retreat and they're busy practicing their vipassana, and suddenly they fall into the void. It's usually quite terrifying. If you fall into the seventh jhana from a state of sort of deep access concentration, it's going to be pretty deep concentration. And so when you hit, it's going to be really strong. And, yeah, it feels like you fell into the void, which can be quite terrifying. They somehow manage to tear themselves away from the void and go running to a teacher. And the teacher gets them calmed down and tells them, you know, go take a shower or get something to eat, don't meditate for a day or something like that. And they, they, they get settled again. And so they're asking me about this, and I say, well, sounds to me like you fell into the seventh jhana. I don't know what it was. It was really scary. No, no, it's fine. There's nothing to be scared of. I don't know if I want to go back there. Okay, so eventually they learn the first four jhanas, and then they learn the fifth and the sixth, and they come to an interview, and I give them the instruction for number seven. This might be several retreats later. And they're like, I don't know if I want to go back there. No, no, go try it out. It'll be fine. So they go away. They come back for the next interview. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly where I was when I was at IMS. Only this time it wasn't scary. 
the fear arose because they didn't know what had happened. The fear of the unknown. Having gone there intentionally, they found the same experience, but nothing frightening about it. I mean, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's actually a great place to hang out. Nothing to bother you. (laughs) Most people describe this in one of two ways, if they're visual. The most common is that it's dark, that it's either black or deep purple, very dark blue, something like that. Or, you know, if you turn your television to where there's not a channel and you get the black and white static, okay, imagine black and black static, all right? So when they are in the seventh jhana, they've got this sort of black and black static that they're seeing. There is a tiny observer sort of suspended in the middle of the nothing. In the sixth jhana, the observer and the observed are the same, but now there's an even smaller observer than there was back in the fifth jhana. And this observer is observing nothing, nothing to be found anywhere. So you hang out and you focus on the nothing. You can do this for five to ten minutes then. By passing entirely beyond the sphere of no-thingness, one reaches and remains in the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. So the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. Perception is a translation of the Pali word sanya. Sanya is the ability to name things, identify things. You look up here, you see person, you see microphone, you see Kuan Yin, you see light, you see plant. You're you're able to identify these things. You look them up in your database of objects and you give them a name. Uh, For example, I don't know that you in the back can see this, but there's a Buddha on this card. Can people see the Buddha on the card? There's no Buddha on the card. There's just colored shapes, right? And you take the colored shapes and convert them into an object. It's easiest to see the fact that you only see colored shapes if you look at a painting. Because a painting, it's pretty obvious there's just these colored shapes. And so there's a painting of a sailboat, but there's no sailboat there. The sailboat is in your head. So this eighth jhana, this realm of neither perception or non-perception, is a place where you are neither identifying nor not identifying. I don't guess that helps a lot. Um, It's really hard to talk about. You see, it's a place that doesn't have any characteristics by which you can identify it other than it's a place that doesn't have any characteristics by which you can identify it. Yeah. Uh, The good news is if you have a really good seventh jhana, a really solid nothing, then let the nothing collapse and come to rest in front of your face and see if your mind will 
enter a space, a place, a realm that doesn't have any characteristics, but it'll stay there. If so, that's likely to be the eighth jhana. But because it doesn't have any characteristics, I can't really describe to you what it's like to be there, except that you're you're having an experience that you can't describe, and you can be stably in an experience that you can't describe that's not changing. Yeah, I always get a lot of blank faces when I try to describe this. What? Can you hear sound in these jhanas? Depends on how deep your concentration level is. It's possible to get into the con- in, get enough concentration to get into these states, and there might be sounds sort of in the distance. Right? They won't pull you away. You're not giving any attention to them. If you listen to see, can you hear sounds? <laughs> you'll hear sounds. In other words, you're not focused enough on the jhanic experience and you'll hear sounds. If your concentration is deep enough, you might not hear anything. I remember one time I was on retreat with Ayakema and I was sitting there and I had the eighth jhana going very well. It was right before the 4th of July. Now, being British, maybe the 4th of July doesn't mean anything to you, but in America it means fireworks, firecrackers, loud noises. And someone set off a cherry bomb, a quite loud firecracker, very close to where the meditation hall was. Uh, When it went off, there was no trace of the 8th jhana. I mean, it was so loud, it just completely obliterated. It was like nothing left. Uh, But meanwhile, there were other sounds where we were practicing was not particularly quiet, and the other sounds didn't bother me. They were there, but they didn't draw my attention away. You don't notice the body. I wouldn't say you can't feel the body. If you check to see if you can feel the body, you can feel it. But you don't notice it. You're so focused on the limitless space or whatever that you're not noticing the body. Now, the eighth jhana is far more fragile than any of the earlier jhanas. In each jhana, you have the primary factor that you're focused on, say, in the third jhana, this contentment, and then there's your one-pointed focus on the contentment. And it's possible that you might get a bit distracted, start thinking, and come back sort of slip out and come back, right? And if you slip out, the the contentment would start to fade, but you get back before it disappears completely, okay? So it seems like you're thinking in the jhana, you're actually beginning to lose it, and then you get back before it disappears. It's even possible up to the seventh jhana. There's the sense of nothing and your focus, and it wavers a bit, but you get back before the sense of nothing disappears, In the eighth jhana, it's much more fragile. You might be able to think a thought that's a simple sentence that doesn't contain the words I, me, or mine and be able to get back to the eighth jhana. But if you think very much at all, I mean, it's gone. When you come back, there's nothing left of it, no trace. You'll have to go back to seven or maybe back to five 
get back in there and work your way back up. Yeah, there's not much meaning there at all. I mean, even in the infinite space, the limitless space, there's no meaning. There's just space. That's it. If you start trying to assign meaning to it, then you'll fall out of the jhana. It's just an experience. It's a very mentally quiet experience. So these are the immaterial states, the immaterial jhanas. They produce even more concentration than the four rupa jhanas because the objects are increasingly more subtle. The eight jhanas are lined up in order of increasing subtlety of object. The more you stay with a subtle object, the stronger your concentration, which enables you to move on to an even more subtle object that you can stay with and deepen your concentration still further. So when you come out, you have a mind that's even more concentrated, clearer, sharper, brighter, more malleable, etc. There is a state that is sometimes referred to as the ninth jhana. That doesn't occur in the suttas. The Buddha never talked about it like that, although he did talk about the state. The state is the cessation of feeling and perception, the cessation of Vedana and Sanya. The word cessation is Naroda, and sometimes it's just simply referred to as the state of Naroda. It's a state of suspended animation, basically. In the state of Naroda, because there's no feeling in perception, there is no reaction to sensory input. You just aren't there. <clears throat> It is said that if you are at the third stage of enlightenment or fully enlightened, you could stay in this state for up to a week. If you're not at that level, you probably can't stay in it that long. But it's, yeah, suspended animation. You may have heard stories of some yogi in India where they they dig a pit and put them in there and they bury them and then they dig them up a few days or a week later and they get out and they're fine. They're putting themselves into this state of Naroda. There's not much more I can say about it. I mean, it might be a great place to go if you had a dental appointment, right? <laughs> or something like that. But it's it's not useful for concentration. I mean... You go into it, you stay for an hour, you come out, an hour has passed, you were completely unaware. It is said that if you go into it, you need to determine how long you'll be there because you can't bring yourself out. So you better think, okay, I'm going into the road, I'll come out in an hour. And then you come out in an hour. Um, The only other things I can tell you about it, there's a movie called Shortcut to Nirvana. It's a documentary on the Kumbh Maya Festival that's held in India. I think it's every 12 years. And then there was one of these festivals in 2001. I think 20 million people came, something like that. Uh, A little bigger than Woodstock. Uh, The documentary in itself is quite interesting. I mean, it's got the Dalai Lama. It's got all these sadhus, really Definitely worth seeing. 
But one of the scenes is they dig a big pit, and this, I think she was a Japanese woman, climbs down into the pit, climbs down the ladder, they pull the ladder out, they put roofing tin over it, they cover it with dirt, and they leave her there for three days. And then they uncover it, take the tin off, and she climbs back up the ladder, all smiling and happy. She obviously had put herself into the state of Naroda. I mean, it's about the only way you're going to spend three days, you know, in a pit with nothing else going on. (laughs) Your metabolism slows down so much that you don't even have to go to the toilet. (laughs) The other thing I can tell you, I was in Chiang Mai for Thai New Year's one time. Thai New Year's is in the middle of April, which is the end of the hot season, the beginning of the rainy season. And at that time, the Thais do their spring cleaning. And every Buddhist Thai household, which would be 90% or more of the country, would have a shrine in the house, and so they would wash the Buddha statue. The custom developed that you would take some of the water that you use for washing the Buddha statue and then you would sprinkle that water on the hands of your elders to salute their Buddha nature. Well, in modern times, the sprinkling has got somewhat out of hand and everybody in the country is throwing buckets of water on everybody else in the country. It's the world's largest water fight and it goes on for three days. I mean, you step out of the room of your guest house and you're greeted with a bucket of water. Well, it's, you know, 35, 40 degrees, so it's not a problem. Uh, So I was there, and on the first day of the festival, I went down to the main square. Now, this is a pretty chaotic spot. There's a road that's going by, and on the side of the road, they've set up spigots, and if you put in a one-bot coin, then water comes out. And people have gotten large barrels and put under the spigots, and they see you coming with your white face and say, one bot, one bot. And so you put in your one bot coin, and out comes the water. And you've got your bucket, so you can get some water so that, yeah, you can participate. And people are throwing water in the windows of the passing buses and cars. And there are people driving all around in pickup trucks with barrels of water in the back, throwing water at you. It's chaotic. It's quite amazing. But in the main square, off to one side, they built a little pavilion. And seated in the pavilion was a monk in meditation. He was in full lotus. His eyes were open and downcast. And he had the most serene look on his face I have ever seen. It was actually quite inspiring to see somebody meditating, especially in the midst of this chaos and not being disturbed at all. He was still there that afternoon when the big parade came through the square. He was still there that night when they had the first round of the beauty pageant on the stage with the music, you know, just right over there. He was there the second day and all day long, and he was there for the second round of the beauty pageant that night. He was still there the third morning. He looked a little tired, serenely tired. He was there that afternoon when the biggest parade of all came through. He was still there that night when they had the finals of the beauty pageant. He had to have been in this state of Naroda. There's just no way anybody could sit there in meditation with this much chaos going on around them.
He was gone the next day. I don't see this state as a particularly useful state. I'd say work on, concentrate on the eight jhanas and use that as a warm-up for exercise. But it is nice to know that such a state actually does exist. It's something that the human mind is capable of. So, questions, comments? Yeah, what the suttas say is with his, from his first teacher, he learned the seventh jhana. We don't know, did his first teacher teach him the four jhanas and then the, you know, five and six? It just says he learned the seventh jhana. And then from his second teacher, he learned the eighth jhana. So there's not enough detail to know what's going on there. But he was obviously skilled in that. When he went back and reflected back to his childhood experience, that was the first jhana. And then when he started practicing the jhanas again, he was practicing the first four. And that's what he did the night of his enlightenment. So, yeah, we really don't know that any, any more than that. That's what's in the suttas. The jhanas tend to happen more or less in order, but not necessarily. <laughs> some people find their way initially into some jhana other than the first jhana. When I started teaching, I was actually quite surprised at the significant minority of people who found their way into two or three or four. I even encountered a few people who found their way into five and a few people who found their way into seven, and I think two people who initially went into six. Nobody goes into eight initially, right? If there's a movement automatically, it tends to go in order but possibly skips. In other words, sometimes people get the first jhana, and when they try to move to the second, they move all the way to the third. So that sometimes happens. Uh, it's not very, I don't think I can remember somebody going one, two, five, four, or something like that. They might go one, two, five, but they probably wouldn't come back to four. So more or less in order, but not necessarily starting with the first. And are there specific instructions, like you said, take a deep breath from one to two and two to three? Are there specific instructions from five to six and six? From five to six, it's a shifting of your attention from the limitless space to your awareness of the limitless space. It's just a shift of intention. From six to seven, it's a shift from the limitless consciousness to nothing. So it's, it's just a slight shift of perception. Is the insight practice different for each jhana? Not really. I would say that coming out of the eighth jhana, you find yourself so quiet that uh, something like the five daily reflections, a contemplation with a lot of words, probably doesn't work so well. 
You know, you just say the sentence and it's like, uh, right? But if you're doing something more wordless, then it doesn't really matter what jhana you come out of. If you're doing standard vipassana, whatever that means to you, coming out of the eighth jhana will work just fine. As far as I can tell, there's a great deal of similarity amongst various teachers of jhana for each of these states. What really differs is not so much the flavor but the intensity. In other words, there are some teachers that want modest concentration and some who want more concentration and some who want incredible concentration. If we were to say that the flavor of the first jhana was milk chocolate, then there are some teachers that would give you one little chocolate chip, and some would give you a small candy bar, and some would give you a regular candy bar, and some would give you a large, giant, super candy bar, and Powalk would push you into the vat of chocolate. <laughs> All right, so the intensity level goes up quite a bit. But the actual descriptions seem to be fairly consistent. Now, not entirely. Uh, the descriptions of the first jhana found in the suttas mentions only four factors. Found in the Visuddhimagga, there are five factors. One-pointedness is added to the first jhana, whereas in the suttas, the one-pointedness doesn't show up until the second jhana. So there's slight variations, but... It seems to be fairly similar. The descriptions of the higher jhanas seem to be pretty close. Right. So if you get into the first jhana without having really strong access concentration, is it possible to build the concentration in the jhanas? Yes, it is possible, though the first jhana is usually not the best place to do that because of all the agitation. Better to move on to the second jhana and stay a long time in the second jhana and let the concentration build there and then move on to the others. But... That seems to be not quite as an effective a method as staying in access and holding off the jhana, and then after the access is stronger, moving into it. That seems to take things deeper, quicker. But yes, you can build a concentration in the jhanas. To remain in a jhana. And to build the concentration in that jhana are exactly the same thing, which is to focus on a particular feature. In the first jhana, it's the piti sukha experience. In the second jhana, it's the sukha, the joy, the happiness. In the third jhana, it's the contentment. In the fourth jhana, it's the quiet stillness. 
In the higher jhanas, it's the name. Limitless space, limitless consciousness, nothingness. And that thing that you can't describe. Right. The difference between the fourth jhana and the sixth jhana actually is, is quite a bit. In the fourth jhana, there's a sense of being cocooned, right? Things are pretty well covered. Remember the simile with the man with the sheet over his head. So there's a sense of sort of being cocooned and withdrawn from the world. In the sixth jhana, it's big. It's really big. So it's quite a contrast there. Uh, yes, the bright awareness is similar, but in the fourth jhana, you're aware of the quiet stillness, and what you're aware of in the sixth is how big your mind is. So it really is is different. The eighth jhana actually is more similar to the fourth. The realm of neither perception or non-perception. The mind is just really quiet there and there's not much going on. But there's enough difference. The fourth, it's you can sort of curl up inside of it and you can really, you've got the quiet stillness to focus on. Whereas in the eighth, there's, there's nothing to focus on except for the experience that there's nothing to focus on. And it's a bit trickier. Yeah, can you stay in the jhana and do the insight practice? There are certainly some teachers that say that's what you have to do. What I've found for myself is if I start doing the insight practice, then the jhana starts to break up, right? So I have, I've played with this. So I'm in the seventh jhana, there's nothing, right? And I start doing my insight practice, and then I get back to the nothing, and then I do a little insight practice, but I've got to get back to the nothing, if I just really give myself to the insight practice, then nothing disappears. I think it's more effective to really give myself to the insight practice and let the nothing break up. It's done its duty. It's got me the concentrated mind. So in other words, you sharpen your, your knife and you don't cut a little and sharpen, cut a little and sharpen. You just like get it sharp and then you work on cutting. And when it gets dull again, then you sharpen it back. So... But there are other teachers who would contradict me. So, yeah. Well, it will stay somewhat sharp. But anything that you do that isn't the sharpening act itself, it will tend to get duller. In other words, you sit here, you get into the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the bell rings, you go eat. The eating itself will dull your mind. Or even if you go walking meditation, the concentration level will come down. But if you're really mindful of what you're doing, it won't come down nearly as fast as if you're mindless with what you're doing. So you can keep it up, but not completely sharp. 
So it's not just an insight practice that makes your mind dull. In fact, an insight practice is probably the thing that will bring the dullness most slowly. The getting lost in your plans or your memories of the past will make it happen much faster. The length of your time you spend in the jhanas does factor into how deep the concentration is. In other words, you get into the fifth jhana and you're only there for a short while, your concentration's a bit better than it was in the fourth. Whereas you get into the fifth jhana and you hold it for 10 minutes, now your concentration is significantly better. You hold it for half an hour, wow, you're going to have very strong concentration. Yeah, you don't really have much of a sense of time. So when I say five to ten minutes, yeah, you're just guessing. It's not quick, and it's not a really long time. Yeah, your sense of time is completely distorted. When it's going well, it may be you're just working away on your jhanas, and suddenly they ring the bell, and it's too soon. I've had that happen more than once. Emotionally, five, six, seven, eight are the equanimity of the fourth. So just like the fourth is a quiet stillness, that continues on, the emotional neutral state in all of these. Yes. It disappears. Well, it doesn't completely disappear. It seems to disappear because you're not paying much attention to it. It's, it's there in the fifth, okay, but you're really focused on the spaciousness. I didn't actually notice the observer in the fifth jhana until I'd been there a number of times. And then it was like, oh, yeah, there was this little tiny observer there. In the sixth, the observer and the observed are the same. And so it's actually... It's not easy to observe the observer, even though you're observing the observed. You know, you don't quite get the idea, oh, that is the observer that I'm observing. It probably took me multiple years before I really got that part. And then the observer is so tiny in seven that it's difficult to notice that as well. And in eight... You're really only going to notice the observer when you remember the experience. While you're there, you're not going to notice it at all. So it's, it's just the referencing back to, oh, there's somebody noticing it. Yeah, it, it just gets so much more minute compared to the experience itself. The path moments, which are an experience that corresponds to each of the stages of enlightenment. In other words, the stream entry experience is called a path moment, and it's referred to as uh, an experience of cessation, yes. But that's different from Well, the word Naroda is the same, but it's different from the Naroda Sanya Panya, Naroda Vedana Sanya. Right? It's not that experience that I 
referred to as the ninth jhana. What it is is the cessation of selfing, right? It's an experience without an experiencer, a profound not-self experience. Right, it's like dreamless sleep. So there's not any experience. It's not an experience without an experiencer. It's not an experience. What can you expect? You can, if, if you are expecting, you can expect that you won't get into the jhanas. <laughs> Yeah, uh, realistically, some people will experience some of the jhanas and some people won't experience any jhanas. That's what you can expect. Uh, I can count the number of people in the room, multiply by a magic number, which is not 100%, and have a fair idea of how many people will experience at least one jhana one time. But... Yeah, as for each individual person, I have no clue. When I first started teaching, I'd get your interview sheets, you know, I'd look through, oh, she's going to do great. Oh, he's, he doesn't have a chance, you know. <laughs> I could have just as well taken the sheets, thrown them up in the air, the right side up, they're going to get into the jhanas, the uh, downside not. I had no clue. Uh, after interviewing someone twice, I have somewhat of a clue. But, yeah, that's why I said just forget about the expectations. I have occasionally had people experience all eight jhanas in a 10-day retreat, but they tend to be people who have been stumbling into these states, into more than one of these states, over an extended period of time. I, I clearly remember the first person. You know, he comes in and, you know, I've described the first four jhanas and he's got all four of them. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. And then I described these and he comes back and he's got all eight of them. And it's like, wow. And then he says, yeah, I've been falling into these states for years. I never knew what they were. <laughs> he, he had, you know, 25 years of practice. But if you've never experienced these before, then, phew, Yeah. Maybe you'll experience, maybe you won't. If you've been experiencing them in the past, then, yeah, the odds are better that you'll experience them again. But, yeah, expectations, I don't know. What? Yeah, yeah. You, you really can't, I really can't tell. You could experience anywhere between zero and eight of them. <laughs> it's going to be probably closer to zero than to eight. Right, yeah, you come and I'm talking about these cool-sounding states and you really want it, yeah. It's difficult. When, you, when you're on the cushion, your task is to figure out where you are and what you do next. Just like if you're following instructions to go from Gaia House to London, your task is to ascertain where you are and what you do next.
No, your next step is to focus on the pleasant sensation and do nothing else. At no point in the instructions does it say, and then you enter the jhana. It says the jhana will come and find you. So there's nothing you can do to enter the jhana. <laughs> no, if you think, I'll focus on the pleasant sensation and that will get me into the jhana, it won't get you into the jhana. If you think, focus on the pleasant sensation and do nothing else, then you might get into the jhana. You really have to let go of thinking about where this is supposed to lead. If you, if you start looking for the jhana, you just messed it up. Right? You can come in and you can review to yourself, okay, <clears throat> sit in a nice, comfortable, upright posture, do the five things, put my attention on the breath, come back from the distractions. When I get to access, focus on the pleasant sensation, hopefully the jhana arises. You can do that. But then you've got to sit in the comfortable, upright posture right? without thinking about, okay, now I do this next. And after you've done that, it's like, okay, now I do my five things. Okay, now I put my attention on my breath. Okay, now I recognize I'm at access concentration. I should stay here for a while. Okay, I've been at co- access concentration for a while. Now I shift to a pleasant sensation. That's where you have to stop and just focus on the pleasant sensation. If you think, and then the jhana arises, you messed it up. Yeah, you have a a well-concentrated mind, and so it has a tendency when you shift from the breath to anything else to stay at the anything else. The trick is then to find a pleasant sensation, and you might have to, you know, a few times get to access and then scan your body to see, all right, I get a pleasant sensation in the hands or at the smile or in the heart center or wherever. And it's just shift your attention. I mean, right now, Look at the microphone. Now look at the ceiling. You just shift your attention. It's that simple. Or right now, notice your hands. Now notice your feet. It's that simple. Or notice your feet. Now notice your emotional state. That sort of shift. Enjoy the pleasant sensation that's there. Yeah, enjoy the pleasant sensation. Once you shift your attention to it, just enjoy it. Do nothing else but enjoy it. It's tricky. You have to be crazy to try and teach this stuff. <laughs> Does a pleasant sensation for a particular person tend to be in the same place or does it change over time? Usually tends to be in the same place, although over time, enough time, years, it might change. But generally, on a, on a given re- 
10-day retreat, the pleasant sensation you're finding is probably always going to be the same one. Yeah, it could be a mistaken thing. To really know what's the first jhana, you want to maintain the release of physical energy accompanied by happiness for at least a minute, okay? Uh, Ten seconds, yeah, I wouldn't say it's stable enough to call it the jhana. You really want to have it there and stick around. I don't think so. If you're using the same center repeatedly, can that cause an imbalance? I don't think so. Uh, especially with the heart center, I think it's, it's quite fine. I mean, that's a place where I think you're probably not going to get excessive energy or anything like that. I mean, if, if you are putting your attention there what's most likely to happen is you'll just have a heart opening and you'll feel more loving if it, if it gets quite intense. So I don't think, think there's a problem there. Okay.